This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. By the book on BFM 89.9. Hello and welcome to By the Book. I'm Sharmila Ganesan and as always with me, my fellow guilty reader, Lee Chui Lin. Hello. So today we are talking about, um, I think, a subject that many people have experienced but perhaps don't quite as often fess up to, which is um, books that we choose to stop reading or essentially abandon um, for whatever reason. So we thought we'd spend today's show discussing uh, the various reasons why and so maybe the books that are most commonly abandoned by many people. I wanted to start by asking you, Lynn, whether you're the kind who abandons books in the first place. Yes and no. I, I, I do it at different times, I think. So I, I remember reading in, I believe it's Stephen King's On Writing, which is one of his best books and is about exactly that, right? It's an uh, autobiography of sorts. It's also uh, a treatise on what he believes to be the best ways to write. And he mentioned that at a certain point, he started giving up on books if he wasn't enjoying them because life's too short to read bad books. And the first time I, I read that, I felt like I'd actually been given permission because prior to that, I didn't used to think that I could, especially when they're classics, especially when they are on the lists of, you know, all these hundred books you must read before you die or, or the hundred books that you have to read, you know, to, I don't know, understand the world. Then it makes it feel like if it's, if it's not the book and it's me, then I need to push through it. Yeah. And so um, I think the first time I read that, I thought, oh, okay, so I'm allowed to have taste. And, and that was maybe <laughs> my introduction to reading as an adult. So that's interesting because um, I love on writing and I remember reading that. I think for me, the, the guilt part comes when it isn't what is essentially considered a bad book. So the books, as you said, that are the classics, that are the must-reads, that are the uh, exalted tomes of our time. When I can't get through those, I often start feeling like there's something wrong with me. And coupled with that, I think it's a, it's a sense of guilt of wasting money, which mm. I think because of how expensive books are and, you know, sometimes you pay quite a bit to buy it or someone spends a lot to buy it for you and then you just can't finish it. So I think until about maybe even... Six, seven years ago, I used to try and push through reading books, particularly the books that got those kind of great reviews, uh, because I used to think maybe I'll warm up to it. Maybe even if I don't like it, I need to justify why I don't like it. But I think age has something to do with why I stopped. So I'm just, you're right. I, I don't have the time for this. I'd rather be reading something that makes me happy. Yeah, gifted books, I think, are a particularly interesting category here because more often than not, and I think, um, you know, if you're a reader, if you're somebody who everyone knows reads a lot, I've come to realize that people buying you a, a book as a gift is often more loaded because it comes with the expectation of, uh, oh, do you like it? You know, did, did I pick the correct book for you? Because you read, you read a fair amount. And so... I, I don't know. I mean, I was once, for example, given Charles Dickens's Little Dorrit. <laughs> um, and it's not the the most joyous. In, in fact, it's one of the hardest reads. It's like giving somebody Mansfield Park and saying, yeah, you love Jane Austen. <laughs> it's not necessarily the easiest book of those authors. And um, I, I tried pushing through it because I thought that I would be exactly that, right? Asked about it or did you enjoy it? And uh, But the truth is that while I love Charles Dickens, I could not get through Little 
little Dorrit. I think that that's one of those where the balance between the the light and the dark, the lighthearted and the very the very serious trauma, difficult childhood stuff that Dickens also likes to write, the balance was just off for me and I've never finished that particular book. Well, speaking of gifted books, I have a well a similar experience in that um, I'm a huge fan of Isaac Asimov and someone once gave me... Um, so they because they knew I was a fan of Asimov, they gave me what they thought was an Asimov book. What they didn't realize was Asimov also did, there's this entire series where he just presents stories. So it's often couched as Isaac Asimov presents tales on werewolves. Isaac Asimov presents tales on robots. And they're not written by him at all. And it was this thick anthology of stories that I really didn't love. And I felt really bad about abandoning it. But Ultimately, I think those are the dangers of, and we've spoken about this before, gifting books, especially when you may not necessarily know either the author or perhaps you're not quite aware of what the person reading and their taste is. Yeah, 100%. Um, If you would like more of our thoughts on gifting books, you can go back and look for that (laughs) podcast. But uh, it is a tricky thing. I I also wanted to know, what are some of your most common reasons for abandoning books? Because I think that there's a huge variety, right? Sometimes, especially when it comes to books that I think you pick up at your jumble sales, at your big bad wolf sales, Um, you know, just the ones where it's very affordable and you're sort of in a book buying haze Mm -hmm. and it's 3am and you're just like, (laughs) I I have to get more. I think in the case of those situations, sometimes you just bought the wrong book, right? Sometimes you just bought a book, it seemed cool based on the cover and the description, you open it up and it's really um, poorly written or it's not what you thought. So I think that is a very sort of simple category, easy enough to understand. But Sometimes it's a little more complicated, I think. Sometimes it's um, more an issue of, of language or even a writer's personality. And I think that the last one is actually the reason why I tend to abandon most books now. Oh, that's interesting. I the personality thing for me, personality thing for me is most obvious in someone like Haruki Murakami, whose books I have attempted and abandoned many times. I've probably only finished. Two of his books, one was a novel and one was a short story collection. Uh, and it's definitely that. I don't like his, the way he looks at the world, the, the way he creates worlds, the way he tells stories. None of those appeal to me. Uh, so personality is one of them. By and large, a lot of the reasons why I abandon books have to do with that I just can't get interested in them. I go through the first few chapters, I keep waiting for something more to happen or for me to feel something more. And if I find myself sort of halfway through a book and finding reasons not to get back to it, like I'd rather clean my kitchen or wash the bathroom rather than continue reading the book, I know that there's a problem. So when I say personality, right, like uh, Haruki Murakami... We've, we've alluded to this before, is a good example of that. I agree with you entirely. Um, but I'm also thinking about writers that I really like, so um, that I really love even. Michael Shabon, I, I truly enjoy. The Adventures of Cavalier and Clay is one of my all-time favourite books. I, I love his writing. I love his sentences. He's got such a facility with language and storytelling. But depending on where the writers are in their lives at specific moments in time, you sometimes see writers engage in a certain level of fixation. So in the case of, I don't know, Virginia Woolf or some such, Sylvia Plath, it's death. It's death all over the place. Um, in the case of your Jonathan Franzens, sometimes your Michael Shabon, mm-hmm. um, it's instead 
masculinity and a midlife crisis. And so there are a few books um, in both of their bibliographies which really focus on that, which which kind of fixate on men in their 40s or 50s just behaving really, really poorly. I remember once just kind of slamming one of the books shut because I, I couldn't do it. And it was Wonder Boys, which was written, I think, in, in 1995. Um, I read that after I had read and loved a lot of his other books. So I, I was returning to an earlier piece and just the fixation on um, infidelity and men justifying their infidelity. I had no interest in that. I think it's because it's a theme. And so if it's something that occupies one entire book, two and entire books, that's when it starts to feel like, you know what, I, I don't really want to do this at this moment in time. Not to do with not enjoying the writer as a whole, but this theme and the way they're choosing to explore it. I don't think that's happened to me as of yet. I don't think that I've had a writer whose work I knew I enjoyed, but I almost felt like I have, I don't know, I'm past that kind of personality. I don't think I've felt that. Um, what I have felt, I think, is maybe an impatience or a, I think just being done with a particular style or a genre. Um, and I think the one that comes to mind for me the most is um, I love mythology. I love fantasy that's inspired by mythology. And I used to be a really big fan of the series of books by Ashok Banker, which is a, a sort of a fantasy version of the Ramayana. Then when this other series came out by this other writer called Amish Tripathi, and he wrote a whole trilogy called uh, the Shiva trilogy, which is about the, the Hindu god Shiva and, and sort of the stories around him, I was very, very excited. Shiva, the Mahadev, the god of gods, destroyer of evil, passionate lover, fierce warrior, consummate dancer, charismatic leader, all-powerful yet incorruptible. Quick wit, accompanied by an equally quick and fearsome temper. Over the centuries, no foreigner who came to our land, conqueror, merchant, scholar, ruler, traveler, believed that such a great man could possibly exist in reality. They assumed that he must have been a mythical god whose existence could be possible only in the realms of human imagination. And then when I started reading the first book, I realized that Something about it, I think I was just over it. Um, I was over the way it was written. I was over the style of the writing. And I think there's just sometimes you outgrow particular tropes or you outgrow particular ways of writing something. Or maybe I outgrew that particular style. So I was very disappointed. And, and I think one of the things I'm not able to capture is why it disappoints me so much when I pick up a book and I don't like it, much more so than with like a movie. Well, I think that the the perceived investment of time is a big one, isn't it? With a movie, you know exactly how long it's going to take. It, it has a running time and it takes you along for that ride. In many ways, it's a very passive experience. You're there, it's happening, and then at the end of it, you have thoughts or you don't. But in the case of books, reading is a very actually active activity. So take that, everyone, who said that, you know, bookworms were, <laughs> were just sedentary. I mean, yes, we are, but it's a different thing. We are um, walking around in our minds. <laughs> Um, reading, I think, is actually a very, very active, engaged activity. You need to understand, you need to imagine, you need to remember more often than not um, what might have happened 10 chapters ago in order for something to make sense now. And so I think the combination of all these things um, is why when you don't like something, A, a greater adventure perhaps is cut short, B, you've invested 
more than you would have if you were doing 10 minutes of a film. And I think I always feel slightly bad for the work the author has put in. Because no matter what, even if the book was bad, writing a book is not a small thing. And it's almost entirely dependent on one person to put in that amount of work. And I think that's part of why I often feel so bad when I when I sort of don't connect to something someone's worked so hard on. We're talking about this idea of abandoning books, about giving up on books that you've started to read. So let us know, um, are you someone who tries to complete a book um, as far as you can? What are some titles that you've given up on? You can WhatsApp us 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio or write to us at buythebook at bfm.my. Brainy, fancy material. BFM 89.9. Welcome back. You're listening to Buy the Book with Sharmila and Lynn. And today we are talking about the subject of abandoning books, uh, giving up on reading a book because something about it just didn't work. So we've spent, I think, quite a bit of time talking about why we might give up on books. I think it's time for a bit of a confessional. What are some books that you've given up on? Well, like I said earlier, Wonder Boys slammed shut um, through across a room, <laughs> in, which I genuinely did. I was, I was, I don't know, in an angry space. Um, <laughs> but a book that I gave up on and that I very badly want to return to, because um, in this case, I know I'm very sure that oh, I sound like someone who's just returning to a relationship that's bad. Um, I'm very sure this time it will be different. Um, but it's from Hell, which is yes, a, the graphic yes, novel. The graphic novel uh, by Alan Moore. And um, the reason why I stopped reading From Hell is because I read in bed and um, it got too heavy. I I don't know if you've actually (laughs) seen the book um, before, but From Hell is not your run-of-the-mill graphic novel, right? So for people who are unaware, Alan Moore um, tends to write these very sort of dark, involving, very dense in terms of storyline, very dense graphic novels. And From Hell is really one of the big ones. It is... It is the size of a telephone book. If I, I know not many of us have those anymore, but it is telephone book sized. And um, eventually I just couldn't sustain it. So um, I put it aside, read other novels, have moved on from it. But loving Alan Moore's work uh, as much as I do, I've always wanted to go back. So I'm going to bring up something I have confessed to on the show before, uh, because it's my eternal regret and shame. And that's, of course, The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. Chapter 1, A Long-Expected Party When Mr. Bilbo Baggins of Bag End announced that he would shortly be celebrating his 11th birthday with a party of special magnificence, there was much talk and excitement in Hobbiton. Bilbo was very rich and very peculiar and had been the wonder of the Shire for 60 years ever since his remarkable disappearance and unexpected return. The riches he had brought back from his travels had now become a local legend, and it was popularly believed, whatever the old folk might say, that the hill at Bag End was full of tunnels stuffed with treasure. I'm not going to sort of prolong this too much, but yeah, that's one of those books that I've always regretted not finishing because it was one of those things that I stopped and started, went back to, restarted, went to again, never finished it, loved the films, 
often get gasps and, and jeers when I tell people that I haven't finished Lord of the Rings. So that's one. I think the one that I've abandoned and feel ashamed about or people are sort of, I think abandoned with no regrets is probably the better thing to say is a big one or rather a small book, but a big title, Old Man in the Sea by Ernest Hemingway. He was an old man who fished alone in his skiff in the Gulf Stream and he'd gone 84 days now without taking a fish. In the first 40 days, a boy had been with him. But after 40 days without a fish, the boy's parents had told him that the old man was now definitely and finally Salau, which is the worst form of unlucky. And the boy had gone at their orders in another boat, which caught three good fish the first week. It made the boy sad to see the old man come in each day with his skiff empty. And he always went down to help him carry either the coiled lines or the gaff and harpoon and the sail that was furled around the mast. The sail was patched with flour sacks and furled it looked like the flag of permanent defeat. It was one of my literature texts. I just could not. I could not. Even today thinking about that book and the repeated journey of the man on the boat and the fish, I, I, it gives me nightmares. So I wanted to address your your Tolkien thing, but I think that the Hemingway is somewhat related. Um, I, I think that sometimes there we haven't talked about this enough. There is also a barrier in terms of language. It's why it's so much easier for us to read abbreviated. I mean, the old man in the sea can't be abbreviated. It's just that there's nothing to say because it's all language, right? Yeah. Um, but I think that the reason why abbreviated texts are so popular and also why I know that they get a bad rep, uh, you know, your, your Cliff's Notes. It's kind of that idea of having a shorthand for a book. But the truth is that they're appealing because sometimes you want to know the story, but you can't necessarily get through the language. And increasingly, as we move further and further away from the 1500s and the 1600s, as our attention spans grow shorter, as not many of us would have taken literature or wanted to study it, I think the issue of language is a really actually very important one because... The Canterbury Tales are fantastic tales in their own right. If you read them in an anthology which modernized the language from Chaucerian to something mm -hmm. that you could understand more easily, I think that they would be runaway hits. But because with Chaucer, the language is so important because it holds such significance in the English-speaking world, it's not often done. Juan de Tabru with his shoe the drukt of March at Persid de Loronta. And baded every vein in switch liqueur, of which virtue engendered is the flour. Once every sing with its way in the breath, in spirit hath in every hold and heath the tender crupus, and the youngest son had in the ram his half a course run. I think language is a huge thing, and with Tolkien, you have like, I don't know, 16 languages kind and of 40 into songs. The book. Exactly. <laughs> Don Quixote is the same, right? I, I love Don Quixote, but it's one very old, old book, mm -hmm. um, translated on top of that. So there are so many layers of, of discomfort to being able to... Don Quixote is not a book, I feel, that you can sit down and sort of just sink into and, and relax. It's a book that takes a bit of work for you to be able to... It's supposed to be funny, but it also feels like work, right? And uh, I didn't abandon it, but I know that it took me several sittings because it's a huge doorstop of a, of a book as well, because it's a collection of multiple stories. So again, building on that, you have your Moby Dick by Herman Melville, which Everybody knows the line. Um, everybody understands the basic structure of the story and Moby Dick. 
Ahab and the like. But uh, what you may not know is that there are also entire chunks of essays about whaling. Um, so, you know, while, as in while, whaling, catching whales. As, as in whaling, <laughs> catching whales, as in the anatomy of whales. Chapter 32. Cetology. Already we are boldly launched upon the deep, but soon we shall be lost in its unshored, harborless immensities. Ere that come to pass, ere the Pequod's weedy hull rolls side by side with the barnacled hulls of the Leviathan, at the outset it is but well to attend to a matter almost indispensable to a thorough, appreciative understanding of the more special Leviathanic revelations and illusions of all sorts which are to follow. It is some systematized exhibition of the whale in his broad genera that I would now fain put before you, yet it is no easy task. That, I think, again, for for the modern reader, uh, for the modern reader who maybe is not so invested in whaling <laughs> in that particular period of time, um, and you may not... I understand why at the second or third you know, um, chapter about what it is to be a whale or, you know, the significance of whales in that period, why it might feel like something you want to abandon. So there are books that are work. I think most of the time they are worth it, but I don't know. Um, you know, there's this question of reading, why you read even, you know, are you reading for pleasure? Are you reading for adventure? Are you reading because you want to kind of uh, fulfill a certain intellectual gap and, and, you know, reading these sorts of classics is your way of doing that. Have there been books that you have abandoned and then gone back to and found that you actually like them the second time? I'm trying to think about it. Um, I I think that perhaps true to form, a lot of it would be the classics. So um, I actually did not finish 1984 in one read. And that's a mixture of things. It was uh, the, the made-up language, mm-hmm. the, the fact that there is a certain phraseology in the book. Um, the world was so bleak and it felt a little too real. And I I didn't actually finish 1984 in one sitting. I went back to it. It's a great book, but it's tough. Lah. It's a tough read. I feel that way about um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude because, and I think sometimes it has to do with the age and the headspace that you're in when you first read it. I think I read it when I was in, I think I first read it when I was in college, Um I don't know. I was bored. I found the the sort of the elliptical way that he writes a little too much to deal with. Not enough was happening. The magic realism felt like fantasy light to me. Um, so, you know, for many reasons, I, I completely abandoned it. But then I went back to it as a, I think in my early 30s. Yeah, that must be right. My early 30s. And I loved it. And I couldn't even remember why I disliked it. Like I was, I fully expected to not like it the second time around. But I was so, so pleasantly surprised by how much I liked it. Many years later, as he faced the firing squad, Colonel Aureliano Buendia was to remember that distant afternoon when his father took him to discover ice. At that time, Macondo was a village of 20 adobe houses, built on the bank of a river of clear water that ran along a bed of polished stones, which were white and enormous, like prehistoric eggs. The world was so recent that many things lacked names, and in order to indicate them, it was necessary to point. 
think we read it for the first time at about the same age. Um, I, I loved it from the beginning. However, I've not returned to it. So I don't know whether oh. um, going back to it would feel different. Um, I think um, just I wanted to pick up briefly on fantasy light because there is something to be said about being a genre reader as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there comes a time at least for me, um, and I think many people, where for a period you're reading all sci-fi or you're very heavily invested in fantasy um, or, you know, your genre of choice. It might be romance, it might be mystery. And in that time, especially when you have a favourite author... um, for whom everyone else measures up to. I think that's also one of the reasons why sometimes the other authors or the other books will fall short, particularly because you're so normally with these worlds, they are worlds. And when you go looking for a replacement world because you finished a series, that's also, I think, when abandonment is likely to happen. Oh, um, 100%. I think I, for me, Isaac Asimov was that. Um, He was my first introduction to proper sci-fi. And for years and years, I refused to read practically anyone else just because they were never as good as Asimov. But, you know, I think those are also things that you kind of have to take a break from and maybe read other things and come back to it. I'm, I mean, I'm always a believer in that unless you truly hated something um, and for particular reasons, sometimes you grow out of or into a book. And so there's always value in revisiting something that didn't work for you at one time. I completely agree with that but it also coincides with my book hoarding habits yes. um you know and yes <laughs> I, I might like up, this someday exactly you end up putting it aside oh it might not be for me today but in five years or you know when i'm next looking for a read and i haven't bought anything for a while uh so it's a it's a dangerous thing that you're advocating <laughs> well let us know are you uh, a book hoarder because you hope to reread or continue reading something you've abandoned what are some titles that uh you tried and just couldn't finish. Let us know. You can WhatsApp us 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio, write to us at buythebook at bfm.my. And that brings us to footnotes and we spent so much time talking about the classics earlier that we thought we would talk about a classic author but with a decidedly unclassic book that we apparently never heard of because it emerged late last month that John Steinbeck had apparently written in his early years a werewolf novel um, which his estate is now refusing to publish and let the rest of us read. And so we thought it would be interesting to discuss this idea of a literary writer and the works that he never published. Oh my God, thank you so much for leaving it to me to say the title. (laughs) (laughs) I was hoping I would get to say it. It is a full length, a full length, guys, mystery werewolf story and it's called Murder at Full Moon. It is so, I mean, just the title alone is kind of mind-blowing. And uh, while we say John Steinbeck wrote it, he wrote it under a pseudonym because it was something that he was trying to get published before he subsequently um, before he subsequently got published, went on to win, of course, the Nobel Literature Prize. And um, it, I mean, Murder at Full Moon, written or at least um, credited to, I believe, Peter Pym. Who knew Peter Pym writing about, let me see, a community gripped by fear after a series of gruesome murders take place under a full moon and investigators fear that a supernatural monster has emerged from the nearby marshes. I'm just reading this from the Guardian article on this. It 
you know, I want to read it. I, I, I think I can understand why his estate seems averse to letting people read it. But I don't think Steinbeck's reputation is going to be marred by having written a werewolf novel. So the question here, I, I think, is a mixture of things, right? It's it's both um, reputation, uh, because it's John Steinbeck, um, the, one of the great American novelists. But the other thing is also the question of what it is that the author wants. So I don't think that we are in the same category as To Kill a Mockingbird and Harper Lee, because that was really, in terms of reputation, in terms of going back in time and kind of really kicking some beloved because characters. She, and she never intended for that to be published. Correct. But in the case of John Steinbeck slash Peter Pym, uh, there was an actual attempt to to get it published. Uh, he also never destroyed the manuscript, which is why it's still in the vaults, which is why it's still available to be looked at. So I, I don't know. I think that here the intentions get a little bit murkier. And we have entire episodes dedicated to authors, right? Our bibliography episodes. A central theme, I think, that always comes up is this question of what their legacy means and what they would have wanted their legacy to mean and how in some cases there's a big disparity. So I feel as if with this, the only issue is intention and or rather, because impact is, I mean, like one werewolf novel is not going to dent John Steinbeck, you're right, but the intention of it is is quite another thing. And I don't know whether it's the geek in me, the genre lover in me. Um, I quite love how a discovery like this totally destroys that arbitrary divide we have between the worthy writers and the genre writers. Because Steinbeck wrote a werewolf novel. Why are we making these sorts of divisions between what's great art and what's not, right? And there's also a case to be made that storytelling can take many forms. And given that this was also one of his early works, I think there's a lot of value in seeing how he's grown as a writer. Even if it's not the best of books, I think there's a lot there to kind of compare, even if if you're just doing it for literary value. I also wanted to point out that the book has illustrations by Steinbeck of bodies on the I think it, at the crime scene. Who doesn't want those? So I was going to gently ask, but I think you just answered my question. Um, how much of this is us just trying to like intellectually justify our desire to read a werewolf detective novel <laughs> by John Steinbeck? Because um, I'm not going to pretend. I, I think that it... I mean, just out of sheer curiosity, just because I love pot boilers anyway, I love werewolf novels. I'm so into this. I, I also think it's just funny. Like as a story, it's just a very fun and funny story. The the, the idea that um, one of the great classic novelists of, oh, it's not even this century anymore, of the last century, mm -hmm. would have this sort of hidden little secret and it's also a treat right because once somebody has passed away all we have left are these sorts of works you know especially if you're a completist if you've read everything else that john steinbeck's written then this is all you have and what a fun thing to have um of all things right it's not a i don't know a treatise on anything it's a werewolf novel I was going to say, for me, it's absolutely the treat thing. When I was a kid and I was reading these authors, this was before the internet, I used to not realize sometimes some of the authors I was reading were in fact dead. Um, you know, so sometimes you keep wanting more from a particular writer. And when they're from sort of such a long time ago, it's impossible. So learning that there was something that they never published and being able to read it is something that just feels like a gift that you didn't realize you could have. Um, and for that reason, I think 
I am very much um, hoping that they change their minds. I know that at this point, we're really talking about dollars and cents making that decision for people. Um, but I do think that there's more value to it than just curiosity and money. Yes, um, I think so. I mean, his estate has been quite clear. It doesn't seem as if they're going to publish it, but I hope they change their minds. We've been talking about John Steinbeck's hidden unknown novel, which was a werewolf novel. People are calling for it to be published, but as of yet, the estate uh, is reluctant. So let us know, are you a fan of Steinbeck and would you want to read that werewolf novel he wrote? You can WhatsApp us 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio, write to us at buythebook at bfm.my. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.